0: Revelation chapter 8, and we'll just read the first five verses. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would bless the reading of your Word. We ask that you would make effectual application of Your Word as we study it this morning. Lord, we pray that You would teach us about ourselves and about Yourself. We, we ask that You would conform us to the image of Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that You would comfort Your people as we see what this Word has to say to us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you've ever been to a Christian bookstore, and you visited the section in that bookstore entitled, Prayer, you've probably seen the name E.M. Bounds. He's written quite prolific- prolifically on the subject of prayer. And uh, in a book, a, a small book entitled, Prayerful and Powerful Pulpits, he, he writes these words. This is a quotation. There is an infinite distance between the betterment of an age by the force of an advancing civilization and its betterment by the increase of holiness and Christlikeness by the energy of prayer. It's easy for us to think that things in the world are getting better because we walk or we drive instead of walk. We get fat instead of starve. And we have the ability to communicate using uh, emojis at, the, at our fingertips rather than engaging in legitimate one-on-one face-to-face conversation. We might seem to be advancing. The question is, if we want to begin to divine, or define advance, is there more Christ-likeness in our society? Is there more holiness in our society? And is there more prayer, as as Mr. Bounds put it? These things, holiness and Christlikeness, increase by the energy of prayer. If not, if there's not more prayer, leading to more Christlikeness and more holiness, then are we really advancing? And if someone would say, well, we are advancing, then the question is, by whose standard are we advancing? It's not God's standard. It would be our own standard. To get more specific, we could ask, do you think that the average church today is praying more or less than the average church of a hundred years ago or two hundred years ago? Now to answer that question, and, and probably get a little closer to a legitimate answer, I could ask you, are you praying more today than you were two weeks ago or two months ago or two years ago? Are we advancing or not? If we begin to answer these questions honestly. We won't grow in Christlikeness or holiness until we grow in prayer. And we will not grow in prayer until we realize that prayer does something. A a society, uh, a people can advance. There can be betterment when there is true prayer. But until we believe that, we're not going to pray. Prayer advances things. Prayer moves things. True prayer shakes the heavens. And when you get ready to shake the heavens, you'll pray. Now, some of you might need to be honest with yourselves from the outset and admit that you've never actually been concerned with anything more in your life or in this society than a base level Judeo-Christian morality. And that only because you don't want your routine interrupted. You know, everything in life is fine until they make me walk the long way to get into Walmart. Everything is fine until they ask me to wear a mask in the store. Everything is fine until the, the, the Civil War monuments start coming down. Now we've got, we've got trouble. We've got problems. We've got to fix things. We've got to get on our knees. We've got to pray. And if we could get all of those things to go away for life to get back to, to normal, okay, whew, we can rest. Everything is fine. That's what we're after most of the time in our prayers. You're not interested in seeing God in the heavens and come down because you know that would interrupt your plans. Thursday evening might look a little different when God sends a revival. And, and we don't want that. We don't want our schedules to change, and so we don't pray. It shows in our praying. It's not that you don't pray or we don't pray, but our prayers are, are generally just for what, I, for what I would call common niceties. We want to be healthy We want to be safe. We'll confess our sins. And we'll ask God to help us to continue being a somewhat moral person. And if there is a situation in our life that has interrupted our normal routine, we would ask that God please fix that so that I can get back to normal. But beyond that, there's no real praying. We we literally pray like we're sitting on Santa's lap. Literally. Think about it. Prayer is bigger than that. Prayer does more than that. Until we understand that prayer does more than that and that it's bigger than that, we won't pray. And if we do pray, we'll pray like we're sitting on Santa's lap, which I would say, that's not prayer. You're not praying. You're not not utilizing the the equipment the way that it was intended to use, to be used. And this text before us helps us to see something of what prayer actually does. And I believe that when we begin to understand what prayer does, we will pray more, and we will pray rightly. We can learn all day long about how to pray, but if we're not convinced that we need it, that it is a, is a, a weapon given to the child of God, we're not going to use it. it. It's all information. Now in these verses, what we're seeing is two vision sections overlap. One is ending and another one is starting. You can almost imagine that you've gone to see a A, a play. And one scene has ended. They've pulled the curtain and then you are allowed to go back behind the curtain, watch them reset the stage, come back out and then the curtain opens up so that the, the scene change to you is not so cut and dry as it is to everybody else. They saw the curtain close and it opens back up and things are different. We, we are here given a little bit of, of a, a, a more technical, uh, detailed picture of, of the changing of the scene. The vision which contained the seven seals is coming to a close with the opening of the seventh seal. And the next vision which contains the seven trumpets is about to begin. And it, again, I said this months ago, the, these changes are not as clear as just the chapter divisions. We would like them to be because clearly the chapter numbers are big and bold. And that makes it easier for us to see. But remember, these weren't there in, in the apostles' writing. So I want us, by way of exposition, to just see if we can get our minds wrapped around the picture here. Verse 1 says, When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Now with the opening of the seal, we're sort of backtracking into chapter 6. Specifically, the end of verses 12 to 17, where the sixth seal was opened. We could understand chapter 7 almost like an interlude or an intermission, a a compassionate interlude where where revelation is given and the saints are able to see their victory and their glory in light of or, or laid right alongside of the things that would characterize the present age. The seventh seal in this verse is opened. Now think about it. You've got a seal or a scroll. It's sealed with seven seals. Now, when the seventh seal is broken, what does that mean? It's no longer sealed shut. It's now capable of being opened and unfolded. And so, we see here that the Lamb of God has done what no other creature in heaven and on earth or under the earth could do already without any hiccups or hijacks. There's no failure. the if We want to call it the initiating phase of this plan has... Been accomplished. We can almost picture the scroll now lies in his hand, not quite so tightly bound. It's, it's ready to be opened. The events that are written in it on the front and on the back are ready to be executed. Now we won't see that until verse 6. But the scroll lies opened, and it says that as soon as the seventh seal is broken, there was silence. Uh, Hush comes over the heavens. Now what does this mean? Everybody has an opinion about what this means. I want to read a few texts of Scripture that I think might at least give us some idea as to this, this silence. Zechariah 2:13 says, "Be silent, all flesh before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy Dwelling. Now, what is it to rouse yourself? It's to get yourself ready for action. Here, as God makes Himself ready for a specific work, we are commanded to in- involve ourselves in this expectant silence. Just be quiet as God begins to act. The prophet Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 7 says, Be silent before the Lord God. For the day of the Lord is near. Now what is this day of the Lord? What does it look like? Verses 14 to 16 of that same chapter. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish. A day of ruin and devastation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. A day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. In Zephaniah, this silence is in expectation, again, of a specific work of God, and here specifically, acts of judgment. Now, we're going to see in verses 6 and following that what is about to happen is, in fact, a series of acts of judgment upon the earth. So it appears that even the court of heaven sort of freezes in this startling, trembling expectation as they await the judgments of God that are about to be unleashed. We know that the angels long to look into the redemption that is, has been procured by Christ. We know that the angels of heaven rejoice whenever one sinner is brought to salvation. And so we know that the, the heavenly court, the heavenly realm is, is at least partially invested in the things that are happening upon the earth. Here, the angels stop in silence as they await what the Almighty is about to do. Now verse 2 is the setting of the stage for what is going to take place in verse 6. And we'll we'll address the details there, but you you still need to put the picture together. The seventh seal has been broken. This holy hush sweeps through the heavens. And then he says, Then I saw seven angels stand before God, or who stand before God, with seven trumpets, or and seven trumpets were given to them. So they... It's like they they get in formation. They're lined up and trumpets are handed out to these seven angels. Again, as we just read in Zephaniah, the judgments of God are like a day of trumpet blast and battle cry. It's almost like they're getting ready for war. And then we move right on past them. We'll pick back up there, Lord willing, next week. Now, prior to the beginning of the unfolding or the execution of these divine judgments, something else happens. And Now, as we're reading this, again, we have to remember that this is a visual revelation, like I said last week, a a, a visual revelation. We're not meant to read this nowhere in this this book. And this is where men men throughout history have, have really gone wrong, I think. Nowhere in this book are we given any reason to read this as an, an unfolding, a chronological unfolding of historical events. It is a divine drama, the purpose of which is to convey to the servants of God the mind of God. It is, it is revealing doctrines for us, teachings for the people of God. And so we could ask at this point, what is it that God would have us to know that that about the relationship between what is about to happen on the earth and the servants of Christ. Remember, the, the, the letter is given for the comfort of the servants of Christ. What is the linchpin that connects the judgments of God with, with the people of God? Verses 3 and 4. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. The, these angels, the seven angels, they stand in formation. Seven trumpets are given out. If we wanted to move our eyes, we could see they're about to blow. But before they blow, there's this little dramatization of something God wants us to learn. We, we, we meet another angel. Who is this angel? The text doesn't give us any specific identity. Men from the past have had no problem asserting that this is Christ Himself, fulfilling one of the, the priestly roles of the heavenlies. James Durham, Matthew Henry, John Gill, Jonathan Edwards, among a few, not, not, not ignorant men by any means. They, they don't even question it. They, they, they write about it like it's, it's an assumption. And I don't have a problem with that, and, we'll, and I'll see why in a moment. But I'm not going to be incredibly dogmatic. James Durham actually takes this opportunity in his commentary to, be, to chase a rabbit trail on the intercession of Christ and just begins to write on that intercession. So I don't have a problem with this. But this angel comes forward. He's standing at the altar with a golden censer and much is given much incense to offer with the prayers of the saints. Now what's the, the, the image here? We're obviously being taken back into the, the tabernacle and the temple that was set up on earth, remember, which are... Types of the heavenly, the reality, the real throne room. Incense was burned in the tabernacle and and the temple twice every single day. At the beginning of the day and at twilight, the high priest would burn incense. On the day of atonement, two extra handfuls would have been burned. The coals and the incense would have been taken into the Holy of Holies and the incense put on the coals there and the smoke would have filled the Holy of Holies so that the the high priest couldn't even see what was happening. But this this regular incense, the daily incense of the temple, was a picture of the prayers of the people of God always going up to God. The incense would have produced a, a sweet pleasing smell offered by the high priest. David makes this connection in Psalm 141 too when he says, let my prayer be counted as incense before you. I want my prayer to come up to you and be pleasing. And this is why it says that he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. The incense here accompanies the prayers of the saints. And so that, that's the picture. The angels line up. They receive their trumpets. But before they blow, this angel steps forward. He brings incense and it's going to be offered with the prayers of the saints. Now what is the effect of this action? Smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. The, the prayers of God's people are received by God. Now we could ask, what prayers are in view here? Well, if we, if we believe that chapter 7 is something of a gracious interlude, and we take chapter 8 and smash it back up to chapter 6 so that the seals are all together. In, with the fifth seal, we saw the, the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. And they were crying with a loud voice. They're praying. O Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Verses 12 through 17 give a picture of the final judgment. And then chapter 8 comes in to show that we don't have to wait until the final judgment. There are actually going to be these temporal judgments in the the blowing of the trumpets that will take place before that final judgment. Judgment is not waiting until the last day. The justice, vindication, judgment against the enemies of God is prepared even now. The angels stand ready with their trumpets to blow. The prayers come before God. Could these things have taken place without the prayers? Just scratch the prayers and say... The angel comes. The angels come. They're given trumpets. They blow. It takes place. Sure, but what does God want us to see? There is a linchpin connecting what he has, what, he, what has already happened, with what is about to happen. What is the linchpin? It is the prayers of the saints going up before God. Now what happens? Verse five. Then the angel took the censer, same censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it on the earth, and there were. Peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. There there is here a direct connection made between incense, the prayers of God's people going up, and justice and vindication, judgment on the earth. The angel threw the fire from the altar on the earth. And this phrase, peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake, we've already seen Once, we'll see a couple more times, it takes us back, really, if we go back far enough, to the foot of Mount Sinai. In Exodus 19, there were thunders and lightnings, a thick cloud on the mountain, a very loud trumpet blast. All the people in the camp trembled. The mountain was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln. The mountain trembled greatly. Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. It's the language of cataclysmic upheaval that always accompanies God working on the earth. We see this in the Psalms. When God acts, when God does something, the way that it's described is in terms of the the, the whole heavens and earth just erupting and and being tossed and turned. So if we try to connect this with chapter 6 put all of these seals together and what's about to happen, we see the gospel age will be an age of gospel advance. The gospel is going to go forward, conquering and to conquer. And as the gospel goes forward, persecution and suffering will follow. And as persecution and suffering follow the preaching of the gospel, in all places, at all times, in various ways, the people of God are going to cry out, How long, O Lord? How long can we endure this? And how long will you allow things to continue in this state? And as those prayers come before God, they are pleasing to Him and He answers them in judgment upon the wicked." Now why do I not have a problem saying that this is Christ that's offering these prayers? Consider the words of Luke chapter 12 beginning in verse 49. These are the words of Jesus, "...I came to cast fire on the earth." Exact same phrase, "...and would that it were already kindled." I've come for this reason and I wish I could go ahead and do it. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. He's speaking of his death. And then he says, Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. We know elsewhere he says, do do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've come to bring a sword. What's he saying? As the gospel goes forward and conquers, it's not going to just make everything lovey-dovey. You're not going to preach the gospel and see flowers begin to sprout and bloom on the earth. It's not going to be that way. It's going to be division and pain and strife. The preaching and the praying of God's servants have tremendous effects in and upon the earth. The preached gospel causes the systems upon which sinful men operate to be shaken to their very foundation. And we're seeing this in our day. You proclaim the gospel and it is antithetical to everything our society stands upon or believes. When the gospel comes from your mouth in any setting, from the pulpit, from the street corner, in the break room, at home with your children, when the gospel comes out, it is an earth-shaking endeavor. We don't see it this way, but we have to understand there is a realm of existence that we can't see. The demons of hell see it, hear it. They recognize that through the witness of the church, the manifold wisdom of God is being made known, and they hate it. They despise it. The gospel, to use the language of Scripture, destroys strongholds. It is an offensive weapon. It is a sword. Now what we see in this text is that our prayers are no less an offensive weapon they are to be used a few things about prayer we see in this text God hears the prayers of his people our prayers are not mantras they're not things that we just we just mutter over and over repeatedly so that hopefully the repetition will at some point convince us that this God is true or that some uh, belief system will be ingrained into our minds God hears the prayers of His people. God is actually so inclined to hear the prayers of His people that He hears prayers that are not even vocalized. We don't even have to say it out loud. He knows what we're going to say before we say it. He hears the prayers that we can't even put into words. He hears the prayers of His people. We see here that God is pleased with the prayers of His people. And the use of incense as a type or a shadow of prayer, a a sweet, pleasing, a sweet-smelling aroma. Our prayers, even our oft-repeated prayers, the prayers that even we sometimes kind of get tired of praying, they don't come before God like the naggings of a petulant child. Just stop, quit it, I'm busy right now. That's not how God hears our prayers. They're pleasing to Him because He loves us as a father loves His children. He desires to hear us communicate to Him. He loves to hear us exemplify our dependence upon Him. He is pleased when we pray and adore Him. Now we know as earthly fathers, sometimes we are sometimes perturbed by our children's speech. Our, our, we get too busy, we're involved in something, our minds are, are, are off on something else, and, and our children begin to talk. They want, us to, they want to tell us a story. They have, they have no discernment as to which details ought to be included and ought not to be included. They don't care about the, the length of the story. They just start going and we, we can feel this tugging like, you got to get it out because I have got to get something done. But God is not that way. The true prayers of the true saints are a pleasing aroma to the Lord. It's not a concession. He doesn't stop and say, okay, I'll give you five minutes. Get it out. Land the plane. Land the plane. We've, I've got things to, do. that's not how God operates. He can't be too busy to hear. It is his business to hear our prayers. His mind can't be too full, his mind is infinite. He doesn't have to work any harder to hear a billion prayers all at once than to hear one prayer. He's pleased with our prayers because He loves us as a a father, loves His children. And He's pleased with our prayers because every prayer of ours is a token of the saving work of His Son. Every time we pray, He is reminded, this is one redeemed by my Son. This once rebel now comes in my presence to adore me, to confess his sins to me, to thank me, to plead for my help with him through the work of my son. My son has saved this one. Our prayers are only possible through Christ's work. Remember the incense of the tabernacle was burned with coals from the altar of burnt offering which was all, they were always smoldering. The altar, of course, points to the sacrifice of Christ Himself who would would come and be utterly consumed by the wrath of His Father in the place of sinners. That coal burns this incense and makes it pleasing to God. Only through the death of Christ has the veil been taken out and the way made for us to enter into the presence of God and pray in such a way... That He's pleased. And so every prayer uttered by a redeemed sinner is like a victor's wreath thrown on the head of Christ. Every prayer is a crown Him. Crown Him. Crown Him every time when our prayers come before God. He loves us. They're tokens of our saving, the saving work of His Son. God hears our prayers. In this text, we see that the prayers of the saints... Go even beyond all of that. The prayers of the saints bring about the acts of God in the earth as He judges and vindicates the truth. There is a direct connection between our praying and God's acting in the world. What do we call God's acting in the world? We call that providence. He works all things according to the counsel of His will. Providentially. Okay, what is a means by which God works all things according to the counsel of His will? the prayers of His people. Now, of course, we're talking about real prayers of true saints in the language of of our Lord in John 14. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. John 16, whatever you ask in of the Father in my name He will give it to you. We looked at Psalm 10 several weeks ago. Whenever God, by the Spirit, through the Word, prepares the hearts of His people, He He impregnates the heart with a prayer, and we give birth to that prayer to Him, those kinds of prayers He hears. We're not talking about James 4.3 prayers. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Not that type of prayer. Not, not just muttering out your carnal, your carnal desires. Throwing those out there. Those go about as far as the smell of your breath and no further. We're not just talking about anything that you decide to say when you close your eyes. The true praying of God's true people bring about the acts of God in the earth. Now notice, if we go back to chapter 6, that prayer that they prayed. They addressed God with reverence and adoration. O oh, Sovereign Lord ruler over all things, unhindered, uninhibited power to govern. They address Him as as holy. They hallow Him. You are unlike us. You're unlike anything in a category of your own. They address Him as true, holy and true. You can do no wrong. You cannot fail. Whatever you do will be an absolute parallel perfection to all of your perfections. They petition Him as judge. How... Long before you will judge, like Abraham prayed, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? They appeal to the judge. They petition his justice. How long before you will judge and avenge? It's implied something wrong is happening. There there is injustice. How long, Lord? How long before you will act? Would, Would you not avenge? When will justice come? They've said in more words, the words of Luke eleven two, too, Father, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. That's what they've just prayed. This is an example of that prayer. Remember the, the Lord's prayer is not meant to be a, a form. It gives us categories, uh, an outline, we might say, with which to pray. This is one such prayer. Your kingdom come, and as they pray, God answers. The fire is thrown down on the earth. The true praying of God's true people is not in vain. It's not a formality. Our prayers are not an impediment to providence. Our prayers are brought into the work of providence and unto the execution of Providence, or to, to put it very simply, one commentator says, the prayers of the faithful ascend like incense to the heavenly throne room and prompt a divine outpouring of judgment on earth. Prayer is bigger than asking for health and safety and please just keep everything calm if you could because I've got something coming up and I need it to be. Prayer is bigger than that. Now, this, brings, this idea brings questions to our minds. The first one is, is somewhat vague. Does prayer change things? Well, if you mean by that question, is prayer a means by which God, who works all things according to the counsel of His will, is prayer a means by which this God brings alterations to people and places and things in time, then of course prayer, things, prayer changes things. That's the point of this text. Now, if you want to get a little bit more specific and ask, does prayer bring any change in God's plan, then you got, you're asking a different question. That question assumes that God has a plan... That does not include the prayers of His people. That, God, that the prayers of God's people contradict what God has already planned. And that God's plan is subject to alteration once those prayers are prayed. Of course, we know that God has declared the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done. Saying, My counsel shall stand. I will accomplish all my purpose. He decrees all things. No event takes place or can take place that is outside of His eternal decree. He says, I have spoken. I will bring it to pass. I have purposed. I will do it. No decree of God can be altered in any way. Does prayer bring any change in God's plan? No. Prayers are God's plan. They are the means by which He carries it out. Through the means of Spirit-filled prayer... God brings about that which He has accomplished, or a purpose to accomplish on the earth. Now, we would ask, if we're thinking reasonably at all, why would God do it this way? This seems like such a... It seems like you're just asking for trouble to to bring mortal men, sinful men, into the equation to play what seems like such an important role. Why would He do it this way? Well, it it brings Him glory, it exalts Christ, and it gives us comfort to know that He does it this way. The true prayers of God's people are not arbitrary opinions. They're the work of God Himself. When you're really praying in the Spirit, you didn't come up with that on your own. God gave you that prayer. God is the one who has saved. God has given us His Spirit. God is renewing our minds to be able to see the world in reality the way He sees it. God's Spirit creates in us longings which are according to godliness, and it is from that that we pray, the work of God. By nature, we imagine that we are sovereign, but by God's grace, we come to worship Him as sovereign. By nature, we imagine God is like us, but by grace, we come to hallow His name. He's the only one who's holy and true. By nature, we hate justice. We hate the justice of God. But by grace, we come to actually cry out for God's justice. Look at the men of the world. They don't want justice. They have no desire for true justice. By nature, that's us. No concept of true justice. But through the grace of God, we begin to get a sight of what true justice is, even as it relates to us. And we recognize, should God cast me into hell this very moment... That's justice. I can't question that. It's a work of God. Those, That those in every generation who were once alienated from God and hostile in our minds doing only evil would come to cry out to this God that His kingdom come and that His justice would be manifest on the earth is nothing short of a miracle of saving grace. This brings glory to Him. Our prayers are just returning glory back to Him. It exalts Him. It also exalts Christ. We have to keep in mind the work of the Spirit of Christ Himself in His church. It's Christ who's taken the form of a servant. Christ endured the penalty of sin under His Father's wrath. Christ was raised. Christ ascended to power. Christ is the one who sent His Spirit. It's by the Spirit of Christ that we cry, Abba, Father. These prayers, if you read the prayer that's written here, or even the true prayers of God's people throughout history, our prayers are not, please God, get us out of here. Or, we can't take this anymore. Or, God, I'll give you about five more years, and after that, I'm going to find another God, because I can't endure this. That's not what they're praying These prayers are like the prayers of Christ Himself. Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. What takes a once rebel and causes them to to pray that prayer? Not my will, but yours. It is the saving power of Christ and His Spirit within us. And so we we pray, Father, glorify yourself, vindicate your truth, manifest your power in the earth. That Christ only comes or that that kind of prayer only comes from the spirit of Christ dwelling in a man. So this exalts Christ. And this comforts the saints. Fits in with the purpose of the book itself. It's helpful to be reminded that our cry, our prayer does come before God. They're not useless prayers. He hears our prayers. They don't fall on deaf ears. Many examples of this kind of praying, we've heard one already from Psalm 89. Psalm 6.3, My soul is also greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? And that's it. How long? Question mark. And God says, I know what you mean. I hear your prayer. I can fill in the rest. Psalm 13, 1 and 2, How long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Psalm 79, 4 to 6, We have become a taunt to our neighbors, mocked and derided by those around us. How long, O Lord? Will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call upon your name. Psalm 65 2 addresses God as you who hear prayer. This is His name. The God who hears prayer. He hears and answers the prayers of His people. We've not gathered together to just sit in a circle and convince all of ourselves that what we believe is true by praying it and saying it a lot. No, He hears. Now think about the climate of our nation and what's happening in the world around us. Just think about it. Have you ever prayed that the eyes of the wicked would be opened to the truth? You ever prayed a prayer like that? Have you ever prayed that our nation would somehow, by some means, see the emptiness of all of its godless schemes? You ever prayed a prayer like that? You ever prayed that the philosophers of this age would be shown the foolishness in all of their attempts to create a medicine for man's malady, which is actually sin, the only medicine for which is the atonement of Jesus Christ. You ever prayed? God, help them to see that everything that they do is foolish. It never works. Nothing that they do works. Have you ever prayed that apostate houses of worship would be emptied out? Did you specify for how long? Probably not. But it's happened. Have you ever prayed that your own eyes would be open to see more of the folly of this world? Have you ever prayed for the help of the Spirit in drawing your heart away from the things of this world so that you could see just how silly it all is? Well, look what's happening in our nation. Have you ever stopped to think that the events taking place in our nation, as we watch as it seems to be crumbling at its very foundation, everything that we've ever built seems to just be crumbling... Have you ever stopped to think, this is just God answering the prayers of His people for judgment upon the people of the earth? Or maybe you haven't prayed that prayer. Maybe this is saints from two or three generations ago who could see our trajectory and prayed, Oh God, open the eyes of Your people in this land. And now we come into our day, and what is God doing? He's opening people's eyes. He's letting us see it will not stand. Have you ever prayed that faithful brothers and sisters in unhealthy churches would have their eyes open to that? I got an email recently from a a family who, because of the quarantine, they've not been able to attend church and just having to be able to concoct some form of worship on their own with their children, they've realized that everything they've ever done in their church has done nothing but pull their family apart. And in this opportunity, they've been able to see, I don't want to go back to that. I'm not going back there. If you've ever prayed that God is answering the prayers of His people. Now we typically view everything that happens in the world as if it were under the absolute influence of sin and and evil men. That it's just men wreaking havoc on this precious nation we've built. Rather than God is answering the prayers of His people. He is revealing the foolishness of all the things of this world to us. God is showing us the, empty of everything we, the emptiness of everything we build. He's showing us that nothing that man tries to do can avail against sin. He shut the doors of almost every church in our nation for at least some period of time. Hopefully we're able to see now the silliness of these people that we prop up as leaders and, and scientists and, and educated people. They, they're, they're beating their heads together just like we do. We're realizing the things of this world are like sand. This is an answer to prayer. This is sanctification happening before our very eyes and we miss it because we just want to keep our heads up and look to the other side. Oh, it'll get better. Don't worry. Give it some time and we'll get back to marrying sodomites, slaughtering children... Et cetera, et cetera. We'll, we'll get back to that once all of this smooths out. No, God is saying, look, everything that you're doing, it must crumble. Christ is going to conquer this nation. He will not, it's not going to be a Babel towering up to heaven. So that Christ has to say, you know what? I never expected an America to come along. No, it will crumble. We're a baby nation. And we're being able to see that this experiment is not the kingdom of heaven. As I said the other week, we weren't kicked out of Eden to come here and build another paradise on earth. It's not going to happen. The prayers of the saints are bringing about the acts of God in the earth. He's, he's judging and vindicating everything he, see, everything he said in His Word. If we would have eyes to see it, we would see the Word said that would happen and the Word that's just manifesting the truth of God's Word. Everything that they're trying to do is, is showing. It is literally preaching before our eyes an exposition of what God has, has said from the beginning. If we have eyes to see it. So what do we do? First, we need to pray or seek to glorify God in our prayers. We have to pray, not trying to match a form or, or a system, but first and foremost to bring God glory in our habit, and in the content of our prayers. We, we ought to be people who are often at prayer. That glorifies God. Not when we say, Oh, it's morning time, I guess I shall pray. Oh, it's before I'm going to eat, I guess I shall pray. It's before I go to bed, I guess I shall pray. No. Often, often lifting up prayers. As we see things happening in the world, crying out to God... And in the content, our petitions must be for the glory of God, not to feed our flesh, not for selfish things. Glorify God in our prayers. Secondly, we need to pray with regard to justice on the earth. Again, it's, it's as simple as thy kingdom come. That's what we're asking. Kingdom, kings, dominion. That's what we're asking. Christ, I want your dominion to be manifest in the earth. If you want to see God glorified, then you will pray that His kingdom would be manifest through justice. Now, I... I I'll clarify, even though I don't think I have to. I'm not, we're not talking about social justice. True justice. The judgment of the wicked and the vindication of the blood of the saints. Real justice. That's what we're after. If your desire is to glorify God and see the Lordship of Christ manifest, then we don't have to be, we don't have to be afraid to pray for God's vengeance to come against wickedness and evil. Psalm 79, 10. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Here's the prayer. Let the avenging of the outpoured blood of your servants be known among the nations before our eyes. Bring it in, God. Show them who is God. May the nation see, this is the God who vindicates and avenges His people. We need to pray with regard to justice on the earth. And thirdly, we need to strive to have spiritual prayers. Pray in the Spirit, with our minds full of truth, our minds full of, of spirit taught reality, eyes that are able to see the world as God would have us to see them, hearts with a longing that has been that has been given to us from the Spirit of God, through the Word of God. We have to be saturated in the Scriptures to see the world for the way God sees it, with in reality, and then from that offer up prayers to God. Again, prayers that are given by God and then lifted back to God. Let's strive to see prayer as kingdom warfare. We need to understand it's not just the preachers. I hope, I hope you understand it's not just the preachers. There aren't enough preachers. It's the prayers. This is weaponry. This is weaponry. You want to preach? Just pray. Pray. Everybody can't preach. Everybody can pray. An army of prayers can put a lot of force behind a handful of preachers. Every time there has ever been successful preaching, it is because of an army of prayers. We have to see prayer as kingdom warfare, a weapon. And then, may the Lord equip us and empower us for the battle. Teach us to pray. And cause us to pray. So let's do that.